Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a Buddhist-oriented path to recovery from addictions. For more information, please visit us at refugerecovery.org. Okay, it is 5 p.m. on the West Coast. Welcome to the first Thursday uh, meditation, Dharma Talk, Refuge Recovery World Services. I'm Noah. Uh, welcome to anybody that's new to this. This is not a refuge recovery meeting. If you're looking for a refuge recovery meeting, you can find them on our website. Uh, this is a teacher-led uh, meditation and talk and time for some discussion, Q&A towards the end. About Three weeks ago, we started a series for the three months ago for the first Thursdays of the uh, Eightfold Path, where we've already been through uh, intention and understanding, or, or understanding and then intention. And so tonight we will meditate, and then the topic will be communication and community, and uh, what's traditionally taught in Buddhism as wise speech or right speech. So we'll talk about that tonight. We'll try, I'll try to practice right speech while I'm teaching some about right speech. Um, but let's start with a meditation. Welcome everyone. We'll sit for about 20 minutes. So find a way to be that is relaxed, upright. Find a posture that feels sustainable for a period of sitting meditation. When you're ready, allowing your eyes to be gently closed, taking a moment to soften, to release any unnecessary tension in your body. Establishing the intention to be friendly, to be patient, to be kind and accepting of ourselves as we meditate, to be friendly towards the mind, no matter how many times it wanders, to be friendly towards the body, even if it gets uncomfortable sitting still towards the emotions. And from this place of kindness, we bring awareness to the first foundation towards the body, mindfulness of the body is feeling what's happening physically right now, Bringing awareness to the sensation of sitting itself, the contact with the seat you're on, the chair, the couch, the cushion. 
feeling the heart beating, the lungs breathing, all of the points of contact where your hands are resting in your lap, your feet, on the floor, the eyelids touching the lower lid, the lips, the tongue resting in the palate of the mouth. Because the breath is always coming and going, it's creating sensations in the trunk of the body, at the nostrils, becomes a good object of awareness, mindfulness of the breath, a core part of our practice. The Buddha's initial straightforward, simple instruction Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. So spending a few minutes giving your full attention to the body breathing, the sensations created by the breath as it comes and goes. And when the attention is drawn away from the breath back into thinking or a sound or some other emotion or sensation in the body, acknowledge what has called for your attention and then come back to the breath, return. Perhaps noting in and out with each breath to keep it simple to focus our attention.
that intention of kindness, friendliness, patience, acceptance that we establish in the beginning of our meditation, we have to remember, come back to over and over when the mind starts planning or reminiscing, worrying, rather than battling or having an adversarial relationship to the thinking mind, just friendliness. The mind thinks that's just what it does. Come back to the breath. Disengaging. Politely excusing yourself from the conversation in your head. And come back to your body sitting here, breathing. you're fairly new to meditation, use the breath as the primary practice. Disengaging from the thinking mind, helping us break our addiction to thinking, our identification, the mind that tells us what to do, what to feel. Such a revelation to realize we don't have to obey the mind we can ignore it we can come back to the breath but this is just the first 
step, the first foundation. The Buddha encourages us to expand to the whole body and to what we're feeling. What's the feeling tone? Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? As we open to the sense doors, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, all of the sensations and emotions that the body experiences, we perceive as either pleasant or unpleasant, or perhaps neutral. So we bring present time kind awareness, non-judgmental awareness to what's happening in the present moment and how does it feel, including sounds or thoughts, sensations or smells. The third foundation invites us to not ignore the mind, but to observe it, bring mindfulness to how thoughts are arising and passing and how thoughts also have a feeling tone. Some of what's happening in the mind is pleasant, some is unpleasant, some is neutral. Mindfulness begins to reveal the truth of impermanence, the insubstantial, transient, ephemeral nature of sensation, how it's constantly changing, how even the strongest emotion arises and sustains, but then dissolves, passes. Thoughts coming and going. Some thoughts are very repetitive. The mind gets obsessed, repeats these thoughts over and over, but they're impermanent, even if repetitive. They have a beginning, a middle, an end before they start up again. Paying close attention to how Everything is changing, is a process, is impermanent.
the other aspect of becoming aware of the body, the heart, the mind, observing how the mind thinks all by itself, the body feels all by itself, breathes all by itself. The impersonal nature of existence, this body continuing to age, to change, this body that craves pleasure, that hates pain, the result of millions of years of biological evolution, not so personal. It's just what it's like to have a body, to be in a body. It's not your fault. It's not personal. And as we observe our minds, we see how out of control, how much is arising in the mind that we wish was, wasn't. All of these afflictive emotions, difficult mind states, the judgment, the comparing, the craving, the resenting, the fear, the worry. Not your fault, just what the human mind does, not personal. But so much of it is so unpleasant. So we learn to bring compassion. Mindfulness of the unpleasant leads us to compassion, friendliness, tolerance, mercy. Mindfulness of the pleasant and our tendency to crave, to cling, leads us to letting go, non-attached, non-clinging non-attached appreciation of the impermanent, pleasant experiences. Ending this sitting with just a couple of minutes of kindness, appreciation towards yourself. Here you are recovering, healing, doing what needs to be done to get free from addiction, to get free from suffering. Turning towards yourself with as much sincerity as you can at this point and with gratitude, with appreciation.
and saying to ourselves, I love you, keep going. Saying to yourself, I love you. And maybe it's, I love you as much as I can in this moment, that's okay. But to keep going towards healing, towards recovering, towards freedom, freedom from addiction, freedom from suffering, freedom from ignorance and confusion. Encouraging ourselves, I love you, keep going. Ready, you can allow your eyes to be open. Bring attention back to whatever space you're in, room. Useful after a meditation to take a moment to recollect, to reflect what just happened <laughs> as we tried to pay attention, as we tried to be patient and kind and friendly and compassionate. It's a process. It's a, a long-term process for all of us to learn to be here to see clearly as we slowly over the months and years of our meditation practice learn to respond wisely, appropriately. And likewise for tonight's topic, uh, learning to the, the third factor of the Eightfold Path of Refuge Recovery, learning to uh, communicate in a wise way and to engage with community, to be part of what we call Sangha, a term that we, Buddhist term that we use for uh, the community, like uh, fellowship is a, another word. Um, now, when I was creating Refuge Recovery, and I was quite um, clear in my own, you know, convinced that a core part of recovering from addiction is connection and is community and is peer support. Um, I learned that in the 12-step world, um, you know, for my first couple of decades of recovery before refuge recovery existed, the importance of having a uh, community of recovering people to be supported by and to offer service, to be supportive of friendships. Uh, and when I looked at using the Buddha's Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path for our recovery program, I was like, oh shoot, it doesn't say anywhere in the Eightfold Path about the importance of community. The Eightfold Path is really this sort of map of the individual's process of purifying karma, developing wisdom, and attaining liberation. <laughs> but it doesn't say anything about um, community. Now, it does talk about how we communicate and how we behave, you know, right? Wise, wise communication and wise action. But so I threw in there into this third fact, uh, also refuge in community. 
Uh, and it does feel like it, it was the place, it is the place in the Eightfold Path that, you know, is about communion, is about connection, is about uh, how we talk to each other and the importance of how we talk to each other and the importance of how we listen to each other and the importance of um, being re in relationship, relational, relational mindfulness. And um, part of the core principle around being careful with our speech is um, what we talked about a couple months ago, understanding karma, understanding cause and effect. So if you missed that one, you can go back and listen to it on, on the YouTube. But uh, of course, the, the, the Buddha's teachings and the Buddhist uh, view that we are following here in refuge recovery is based on uh, an understanding that there is cause and effect and that uh, positive actions positive speech you know speech is an action is a, a volitional what we say <laughs> has karma everything that we say has karma so just take a moment to you know, remember that, to think about that. Maybe you don't believe this and that's okay, but just to every single volitional communication is creating either something positive for us, positive karmic fruit, the outcome of honesty, kindness, uh, patience, tolerance, compassion, all of those, when we're communicating that, we're creating a positive karmic momentum for ourselves. Now, when we're communicating intolerance, judgment, anger, dishonesty, you know, when we're, when, uh, in, you know, we are creating negativity for ourselves. Um, even when it feels like <laughs> our intolerance is called for even when it feels like it's justified to be angry and judgmental and we still have the karma justified or not we still have the karma of that communication because of uh this whole process that's about purifying our karma meaning that we come to recovery, we come to the practice, probably with a whole bunch of negative, uh, what we call unwholesome or bad karma, based on our own reactions to what our life, right? Uh, probably we've been dishonest, we've been uh, unskillful with our speech, we've been uh, unkind, most likely. Once in a while you meet that addict who says, you know, I was a pretty good person. <laughs> I, I didn't lie, cheat, and steal. I just uh, like that wine. <laughs> um, but most of us, have, you know, can look at our lives and say, like, oh, yeah, I was, you know, I was caught up in my own pain, and my own pain uh, spilled out onto the people around me, and that's, you know, and uh, in all kinds of unskillful ways that created, you know, negative karmic momentum. And as we come into recovery, this whole uh, system of Buddhism, the Four Truths, the Eightfold Path, is about leading us to, to freedom. 
And in order to, to get free, we have to change. We don't, it's not about just not drinking and using or, you know, the food stuff or the sex stuff or the money stuff or the codependency relational stuff. It's not, that. that's just the, the manifestation of our underlying confusion and, and as manifested as, as ignorance, but the karma uh, is our work. How am I going to become kind, loving, patient, compassionate, wise? And so just like meditation takes a long time to develop, to become very proficient at being mindful or at being forgiving or being compassionate, changing our speech habits takes a long time uh, for most of us. There's five, when it comes to wise communication, there's um, four or five things to think about when we're communicating something. Now, I also want to pause and say, you know, although traditionally this is talked about as wise speech or, or wise, um, I translated it as communication because it's not just speech. It's um, everything that we write, everything that we text, everything that we email, everything that we post online on social media is all communication. And beyond that, also even just um, facial uh, expressions uh, are also communication. You know, how, you know, that sort of how you look at someone, giving someone a dirty look, <laughs> mad dogging, or, you know, stink eye, whatever you call it, is also a communication that is negative, that is, um, you know, there's some negative intention behind that communication, the way we look at each other that judgment, that uh, uh, anger, that, uh, you know, sort of a critical look. We, we roll our eyes, karma in rolling our eyes, right? So it's not just what we say, even body language, fucking all tightened up on fucking, is expressing something. You know, it might just be expressing, I feel uncomfortable, but it also might be, you know, kind of sometimes we're projecting that on, onto the people around us. So all communication, you know, and I don't know how many of you have done a silent meditation retreat with us yet, but on silent meditation retreat, we don't, we, we not only don't talk to each other, we also don't look at each other because there's so much communication in eye contact. You know, you, you say so much with your eyes. So also, you know, I know this is sort of a lot, but there's karma in how we look at each other. Are we looking with kindness or are we looking with judgment? Are we looking with kindness and acceptance and friendliness? Or are we looking at each other with that kind of comparing, judging, critical tendency? So wise communication from our Buddhist perspective is honesty, first and foremost. Am I telling the truth with what I'm communicating? Is it true? Now, the second one is, is it appropriate or is it useful? 
And this is where this can be really the rub for a lot of people in communication, because there's a, you know, we can be telling the truth, but it's not appropriate. It's um, we're using it as a way to, um, you know, cause harm. It's not the appropriate, you know, because then we go from, is it true? Is it useful? Is it the appropriate time to communicate this? I've seen that in my life so many times where I'm saying something and it's true and I think it's useful, but I'm blurting it out. <laughs> and it's not the appropriate time. It's not the appropriate container. It's not the, it's not, it's not the time to be communicating this. It's in public or it's, uh, you know, it's not in the container that, it, you know, I need to have this one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody and I'm saying it in front of other people and it makes it un inappropriate because uh, it was a true thing that needed to be communicated, but not publicly. So that, that's, a, you know, for us to look at, is it true? Is it useful? Is it the appropriate time to communicate this? And is it coming from a place of kindness? Now, kindness is such a, I don't know, umbrella term or, um, you know, uh, I, when I think of kindness, some of you probably heard me think about this. Think of kindness as like situational ethics. Kindness isn't always being nice in that, you know what I mean? Like sometimes we think of kindness as like being nice, of being uh Sometimes the kindest thing to do is to say no to somebody, right? And we think, ooh, that's unkind. Like, don't, you know, <laughs> can't say no to somebody. The kind thing to do, it feels like, you know, we think it's, oh, I, if I'm being kind, I'm saying yes. And I'm, but the kindest thing to do, like, like for the uh, active alcoholic or addict or, you know, uh, addict that's asking for something, that you know is going to cause them harm, even money. Like, you know, when, when someone's asking you for money and you know they're going to use it for to feed their addiction, their alcoholism, whatever it is. The kindest response is absolutely not. I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to enable that. Now, they might not take that as, well, you're not very kind and generous. I thought you were a Buddhist. Like, I thought you were kind and generous. You're not going to give me any money? Or, you know... Sometimes, sometimes it's the kind thing to let somebody come crash on the couch and want to detox. <laughs> uh, but sometimes it's like, actually, you know, last time you walked off with, uh, you know, some of my stuff. So I can't do that again. I, you know, the kind of thing now to do is to say no. So in communication, there's these, you know, there's so many different situations where um, we have to take them you know, each one is different, but that commitment to, I want to be honest and I want to be careful with my, with my speech. Uh, is it appropriate? Is it the right time? Is it coming from kindness? Um, so a commitment to rigorous honesty, but with some awareness of the context of that rigorous honesty. So some, you know, some basic guidelines for wise speech, wise communication, and then community and taking refuge in the Sangha. 
and um, where we communicate with each other. We attend our meetings and we share for our three minutes or our five minute leads or our speaker meetings or whatever. And we show up and we tell the truth. And then we talk to each other and we welcome the new people. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we're welcoming the people that are new and, and um, being kind and open and uh, accepting of each other. Even if their speech isn't wise, still being kind and tolerant and open. Uh, every once in a while, we get stuff at, you know, Refuge Recovery World Services about, you know, people in meetings who want to kick someone out of a meeting because they're not practicing right speech, because they're not behaving skillfully. And, you know, there is a place, you know, if somebody's really being disruptive that, you know, there's a process for that. There's a safety statement <laughs> and process for that. But also, like, a whole bunch of addicts getting together even though we're trying to practice Buddhism and wise speech, and of course people are going to come in, and even people that have been around for a while aren't going to necessarily be practicing wise communication and aren't going to necessarily have wise views. And a huge part of our commitment to community is accepting everyone, you know, making sure that we're inclusive, that we're um, including other people who have ignorant views and ignorant speech tendencies and also welcome to be here and to heal rather than saying like, hey, you're not quite skillful enough to receive our help. Your political, social, whatever views don't fit with ours. So you're not welcome to heal from addiction. So this radical inclusive, accepting community, which accepts uh, even people who are still lying and cheating and stealing. Now, as individual members of community, we have to practice a lot of discernment. We have to be quite careful. Just because somebody's in our community, in refuge recovery, doesn't mean that they're trustworthy doesn't mean that they're honest, doesn't mean that. Um, so we have, you know, it's, it's quite tricky, I think, because yes, on one hand, welcome everyone and, and give people a chance and support them. But also remember, this is a whole bunch of addicts, many of whom are coming from a lifetime of suffering and confusion and dishonesty and have not become trustworthy people yet. So just because we, you know, just because we're in recovery doesn't mean we're trustworthy people from the gate. And even sometimes people who've been around for years who haven't drank, haven't used, but are still lying and and um, you know creating negative karma in their relationships in their lives. The community gives us so much opportunity for patience and tolerance and compassion and forgiveness of each other. So many opportunities uh, to be of service. And my sense in community, and I, you know, this is in the book around around this topic, around this chapter, around, you know, there's kind of three sort of levels, I think. There's um, the people like when we come into recovery that are helping us, the people that have been around seem like they have some wisdom, seem like they have some recovery. 
the people that we're looking up to and saying, well, how do I do this? And that are, you know, either mentoring us or just the people that we kind of look up to in a little ways of like, oh, these are the people that are doing it. Let me watch what they're doing. They're coming to meetings, they're meditating, they're going to retreats, they've done their inventories. Let me look at the people who are doing it. And then hopefully uh, the second level is the people that are kind of around, kind of peers. Not, not that they've been doing it much longer than you, but, you know, people that, you know, they're kind of your uh, your cohort in recovery, your <laughs> um, of kind of like, oh, yeah, we kind of got into this together and we're on, on this path together. And there are our peers and our our sangha in that way. It makes sense. Those two, those that were kind of doing it and we're looking to watching them and and then the people that we're doing it together with. And then there's the people that are coming in that are newer, that are looking to us, you know, that our job is to be of service to them, to communicate, this is possible, and this is how it's done. And especially with those people to be extra patient and tolerant, and also to have really good boundaries <laughs> with, you know, to say, hey, this is what's done. And like, you know, do your inventory, and then give me a call and hit, five, you know, hit a meeting, and then give me a call. And, you know, to be careful for our codependent caretaking tendencies that that balance of being available but without being uh too attached to the outcome so these are some of my thoughts about the third factor of our eightfold path, just, you know, some, some brief thoughts. We've got uh, about 15 minutes left for discussion around wise communication and, uh, and the importance of taking refuge in community. And, um, you know, there's that sort of trendy thing that was going around the last few years of, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. Um, and, you know, I think it's, been some some of my experience of like when I'm connected to Sangha, when I'm, uh, you know, connected to community, um, it's a huge part of recovery for me and always has been. And of course, it's the whole philosophy behind Buddhism, take refuge in the Sangha, the whole, you know, uh, behind refuge recovery, we take refuge in the Sangha, this is where we find help. But also with that warning of like, but also be careful. There's a whole bunch of crazy motherfuckers in this program. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm in that special position where I get all of these reports, people kind of being like, well, they did this and they said this. And this person that I met on retreat did this. And, you know, it's like, yep. Yep. You know, that happens even, even, you know, even in recovery that happens. And um, it's unavoidable, probably, you know. We have to use more discernment. We can't blame the community. We just have to use more discernment of who we let in close. So I'm going to open it to questions, comments. You can raise your hand in the uh, reactions button down at the bottom there. Kat, go ahead and get us started. Hey, Noah. Hey, Sangha. Um, I don't know if it's really a question, but, um, I was like reflecting on my relationship with my family, um, and how like, <laughs> like pretty much everyone, uh, we don't talk, uh, because we can't because of right speech, you know, like, cause we haven't been able to communicate well. And the more 
that I get so or not get sober, but the more in recovery I am, the more awake I'm becoming into the fact that like my family and they're not bad people. They're just emotionally immature people. And that's not making them a bad thing. But I just wanted to just say that because I'm, I have a hard time accepting it now. Like, okay, well, it's going to be like this forever because they're not going to change or not forever, but like my, probably my whole life. So what would you say, like how to like talk to the one person that I have in my life? Um, Because it's, it's hard because I feel like she's, you know, she's not abusing me, but it's more like my uh, buttons are getting pressed every time. Like I literally can't, it's hard to talk to her, you know, it's, it's hard. Anyway, that's I'll it. say, uh, I'll say a couple of things about it. Um, one is the way that, uh, you know, kind of the Buddha talk about this was, you know, and there's this term where he says, avoid fools and draw near to the wise. And there's an actual encouragement to like, hey, if you're, you know, like, even if it's your family, if your family are fools filled with dishonesty and, you know, kind of, then uh, don't be very close with those people. Be very close with the people in your life who are trying to be honest and loving and kind and, you know, on the path of, of wisdom. So there is some encouragement to have really good boundaries, even if it's family. Now, Most of us, you know, are going to say, hey, you know, um, they're my family. I'm going to, you know, give them some, I'm going to deal with them some. And my father um, used to tell this story about his relationship with his father, my my, my uh, grandfather. And my father got into Buddhism and spirituality and, and, but always had conflict with his dad. Um, and, and, and every time he went to, you know, visit his parents and he got along with his mom, but always had, you know, like, you know, shouting matches with his father, but, you know, my dad was a hippie and, you know, grandpa was a, you know, conservative Jew a little bit, you know, and then was just kind of like, it was not, it was not, it was hard for them to get along. But my, my father tells the way that he tells the story. He said, the more that I practice the Dharma, the more that I practice right speech, the less reactive I became. And I got to the point that no matter what, you know, his father said to him, I just wouldn't take the bait. I just wouldn't, you know, get into the political discussion or the, and I would just be like, hmm, that's interesting that you believe that and, and meet him with compassion and meet him with, with wisdom. And he said at some point, his mother, my grandmother noticed that, you know, after kind of, you know, decades of conflict between these two, that my father had come to a place in his dharma practice where he wasn't uh, engaging in it. And it takes two to really create that kind of conflict. You know, if, if you, we can come to the place where we're just, you know, no matter what they say, oh, interesting, you, you know, I, I hear you. I, I hear you. And I don't need to let you know that I think you're completely and totally wrong. But I, I just I just hear you. Um, now, also, I think like I like that story. I aspire to that. I think we can all aspire to that of like, no matter what, we don't need to engage in conflict. We can just say, OK, I hear you. 
but we also have to have the humility of like, I'm not there yet. I think, um, you know, one of the real tests for our, you know, and this is appropriate, the holidays, family, holidays, right speech, um, you know, uh, it's actually where we see our progress in our recovery and our in our life when we're around our family, right? Our family push our buttons for most of us, right? Our families, you know, we we regress, you know, I go back to the rebellious teenager or whatever. <laughs> we regress around our families. And so when we're with them, we can kind of see like, actually, I'm more honest, I'm more patient, I'm more tolerant, still not perfect. But you'll see where you're at in your practice when you're around your family. Um, if you choose to engage with them around, you know, these holiday seasons where a lot, of, you know, most of us do, we choose to engage. So I hope that's helpful. Yes, thank you. There was another hand, but it went down. Was that, did you change your mind? You got scared off? I don't blame you. Rebecca, was that you that had your hand up before? Yeah, go ahead. And then I'll go to Kato. Um, so I thought maybe you would answer my question um, while you were answering cats. So um, I, I thanks for the, the meditation. I'm kind of, um, I forget often that I don't have to follow every thought, especially if it makes me feel bad. I feel like I have to feel those ones. And um, thanks for the reminder. That's not the case. Um, I, I guess what I'm wondering is more along the lines of like, as, as we are in this program, as we get further into recovery, and there are people around us who are not, um, you know, in the Sangha who don't understand what we're doing, and they don't understand the changes in our lives and, um, you know, the things that maybe we're discarding that no longer serve us, how do we interact with them? How do we, I mean, because people, people think I've lost my shit. So, <laughs> any advice for that? Um, I mean, it is the first part of what I started saying to Kat, uh, you know, draw near to the wise. Uh, draw near and near to the people in your life that are, um, you know, living this path of trying to be wise with our communication, trying to be mindful, forgiving, compassionate, practicing, you know, what we call the Sangha. This is the Buddha's advice. You know, he goes as far as to say, you know, if you can't find any wise companions on this path, better to be alone than surround yourself with fools. So, you know, and there is a natural progression as we, you know, go from like, hey, I'm an alcoholic addict, you know, surrounded by other alcoholics and, you know, or maybe not, but to, hey, I'm going to live this life of wisdom. I want to live this life of service and, you know, and, you know, not materialist aspirations, but spiritual aspirations. That it does make our world kind of smaller in some ways, but then also bigger once we connect with, oh, there's all of these other people on this spiritual path, for lack of a better word, path of recovery, of wisdom. 
draw nearer to those. And then we, I think we kind of naturally, you know, fall away from some of the um, other relationships in our lives, even family members who aren't on the same page. The one thing that I'll say about that, and this is maybe my experience, I don't know if this is true for you, Rebecca, or other people. When I hear that teaching from the Buddha to avoid the fools, it's a little bit what I was saying around the tolerance in the Sangha. Um, I find uh, that I still have very much um, connection with, draw towards, and commitment to staying uh, for me, like in the punk scene or the motorcycle scene, or, you know, there's some scenes for me where that's mostly knuckleheads. <laughs> there's not a lot of wisdom, but I still feel very much connected to being there. And over and over in my recovery, I find that being part of those communities, I'm the person in that community that people come to when they want help. And so I don't completely avoid it. I show up as a sober, meditating Buddhist person into those realms. And then, you know, the people that get interested say like, oh, cool. Like I, you know, I need to get sober. I need, I'd like to learn about meditation. I, and, and we get to be of service so that we don't completely avoid our friends and family and, and, you know, subcultures or, uh, you know, genres that we are that we actually like, you know, like that's the kind of scene I like, um, even though there's not a lot of wisdom generally in that scene. <laughs> um, but we get to be of service there. Thank that no, that's, that's super cool. Thank you. Welcome. Cato, last one. Hey, Noah, it's good to see you. Um, thanks for doing these. It's nice to see everyone. Well, First, I'm not, I'm not thrilled that uh, eye rolling counts against my karma now. So that's that was. Uh, uh, you know. Sorry about that's, that. Yeah, that sucks. Thanks for that. Um, and it, the question is kind of variation on a theme, and you'll know what I'm talking about. It's not. It's, it's not. It's, it's about communicating my own recovery to either sometimes family sometimes people outside of recovery people i used to used to know and not so much the fools granted there's the fools out there but it's it's more like i think it's like my problem you know of not being able i'm proud of it i understand how difficult it's been i understand some of even the uh, the miracle of it all but when i try to explain it it some shame comes in, some uh, resistance comes in, inversion. I, I minimalize it, you know. So it, it, the question is something in that frame of moving forward in this. How can I use communication to the people that I choose to and want to talk about it and not, you know, and not talk, not minimalize it, you know, and, and, and talk shit about it, something like that. Not sure. You know, my main thought is like, it's a process. And, um, you know, you're just coming out of the closet with some of your long term relationships of like, that shame of admitting I'm sober. Oof. You know, after a while, like we get some like sober pride. And, you know, in some circles, you have that. But, you know, when you come from hard drinking, hard partying, you know, and that's like part of our identity, 
you know, junkie pride, alcohol, you know, it's fucking embarrassing to admit that you're a nerdy, sober Buddhist now. And the 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 fucking superego, you know, whatever it is, our uh, sense of self is really threatened by that. Like, you know, I'd, I mean, I, I'd, I might be projecting this all over you, but I know for me, like, my identity as like a drug addict criminal fit really well. You know, I was proud of being a thug, you know. But when it came, then, but then like being like a fucking Buddhist, how embarrassing around, you know, how uncool in the circles that I ran in, especially fucking 35 years ago, how fucking uncool to be spiritual in my anti-religious, you know, subculture. So some of it is just a process of like, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, you're going to be a little bit embarrassed. Yeah, your mind's going to judge you and attack you a little bit. And you do it anyways. And you walk right through it with, it's true, it's useful, it's appropriate to have those, you know, that's the piece. And I know that's where your question's coming from, when it's appropriate. Now, sometimes people get a little overzealous about this and like go out and start fucking knocking on doors and like, I'm sober, Buddhist meditation guy, and you should check this out. Everybody should be Buddhist now. Everybody. And, you know, I know you're not doing that. That's not, a, you know, but some people do that. Um, so I, I just think is that humility of like, yeah, these are weird conversations to walk through in the first few times. And then you do it more and more and more and you get more used to it. And then you get more identified with like, this is a much better thing to be identified with. This is a much healthier way of life. And I, you know, somebody put in the chat, you know, sober Buddhist nerd pride, you know, whatever. Um, and that's certainly happened for me some years into recovery where I was like, oh, no, this is actually much cooler than being a violent criminal. But in the beginning, it wasn't. But it became, oh, this is I actually much more interested in, in the power of kindness and compassion than I am in being a tough guy. Tough guy is easy. Kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And this is really radical. Um, so you just walk through those weird conversations and then they get less weird. That's the ticket. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. Good to see everybody. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Um, Although this is freely offered, if you have uh, some donation, please considering, you know, I, I said at the beginning, it's not a meeting, but like at meetings, we do accept Donna. All of that will go to Refuge Recovery. Uh, Refuge Recovery can use your financial support. We run at a deficit. I'm actually the executive director and have stopped taking a, a salary. I'm not, I've been a volunteer executive director for the last three months because we don't have enough money to, to pay me, to, and, but I just do the job anyways. Uh, we can use your support. Bottom line is we don't have the kind of financial support that we need to really run the organization. And uh, I love this organization and I ran it for free for, you know, the first eight years. I started paying myself a couple of years ago, um, but there's not actually the money here to pay, pay, pay me anymore. So if you can help, please help. 
um, you know, whether it's $5 at the meetings you're going to or here, or it's larger donations to the nonprofit to really support what we're doing. And um, happy holidays, you know, uh, see you, uh, I guess, see you next year, see you in January. Uh, may any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions, shared with all living beings. May each of us get as free as possible in this lifetime, and together may we create a positive shift, a positive change on this planet. Peace out. Refuge Recovery is freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation to support us, you may do so by following the link in the episode notes. We appreciate your generosity.